Hey everyone, this is Jason, and welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. I know it's been a while, but you know, sometimes life happens and you just gotta take care of it. But I am so excited to be back with you all, and today we have a great guest in Ethan Frisch, the co-founder of Burlap & Barrel, a spice company that is redefining sustainability by building new international food supply chains that are equitable and transparent. I have actually been using these spices for the past few months, and beyond the fact that Ethan and his co-founder Ori have been doing some incredible things, the spices are insane. Like, really damn good. Ethan has had an extremely interesting journey, and it was fascinating discussing Burlap and Barrel and how they're changing the spice game. Let's get into it. Hey, Ethan, welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. Thanks for having me. So you're doing some amazing things with Burlap and Barrel, but I'm super fascinated by your journey, as I know you've jumped around all over the place doing different things, which kind of seems to be a path that I have been on and will likely continue to take. Um, Can you maybe talk a bit about this journey that led up to you creating Burlap and Barrel? Yeah, it's it's definitely been uh, circuitous. And in retrospect, it all makes sense, but it definitely didn't make sense at the time, kind of how one piece was going to lead to the next one. Uh, but it's also, I mean, to your point, it's, I, I think the most fun, most interesting way to have a career, you get to try a whole bunch of different things. And then at least in my case, ultimately decided on something that, that drew on elements of all of them. But I was a, uh, a conflict studies major in college, a combination of political science and history and sociology. Uh, psychology all focused on on conflict and particularly uh, wars and revolutions. Um, but I had always loved to cook, even as a kid growing up. Uh, you know, I just I just always loved to cook and was always drawn to food. Um, I I got out of I graduated in college in two thousand eight, which was the worst year in recent history. Maybe not, you know, maybe last year aside, but until last year, one of the worst years to graduate from college right into the financial crisis. So I had a great job initially at a, um, a political foundation organizing conferences and got laid off. And because I had always loved to cook, uh, decided to apply for jobs in restaurants. Um, saw that as an opportunity to, to try something new, uh, something that maybe I wouldn't have pursued as a, as a career otherwise, because it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't as prestigious or it didn't have the same sort of uh, intellectual um, elements as, as other jobs I had I'd been interested in. So I wound up working in restaurants and, and loved it. Um, worked in the kitchen at a Michelin starred restaurant in lower Manhattan uh, called Allen and Delancey. I got to cook with the incredible chef Floyd Cardoz at his restaurant Tablo, which was an iconic fine dining Indian restaurant in New York City. Um, and then with my current business partner, with my co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, started an ice cream company, an activist ice cream cart. This is the summer of 2010. Uh, we had flavors inspired by revolutions and political movements around the world, and we donated 100% of our profits to a street vendor advocacy group here in New York City. Um, so we had a, an Israel-Palestine flavor. We had a, a Portuguese West African anti-colonial uh, flavor. We had an Indian Maoist flavor. Um, you know, trying to use ice cream to talk about international issues and and uh, struggles for justice. Um, but that wasn't going to last very long. It was an ice cream cart in New York City. You can't sell ice cream from a cart in New York City after September. And 
And so I, I moved on. I went to grad school for international development uh, in London, became an aid worker and moved to Afghanistan. Um, I lived in Afghanistan for, for about two and a half years, mostly working for a great organization called the Aga Khan Foundation. Uh, and, and there I was spending a lot of time in really remote rural areas of the Northeast of the country, uh, a part of Afghanistan where foreigners really very rarely get to go. And I, I, I mean, still such a, such an incredible experience to have spent time there. Um, and there's a variety of cumin that grows wild in the mountains. Uh, I, I thought maybe, uh, mistakenly, I knew my way around a spice cabinet. I had worked at a high-end Indian restaurant. I thought I knew what I was talking about. And then I just started smelling and tasting ingredients that I had never come across before. And this cumin was, was just really striking. Um, so I started bringing some home uh, to share with friends in the restaurant industry, chefs, food writers, um, people who I thought would be as excited as I was about this variety of cumin that I had never tasted before. And it turned out they had never tasted before either. Uh, and, and that was really where the idea for Burlap and Barrel was, was born. Uh, conversations with chefs who were, who were eager to buy something that I, knowing basically nothing about international imports, logistics, any, any of the things that I would come to learn a lot about, that I could bring something home in a backpack that a chef would be excited and want to buy. Um, and then at the same time, having conversations with producers initially in Afghanistan and then, then elsewhere, who knew that there were higher value markets for their ingredients, knew that they should be making more money, could be making more money, and just didn't, didn't know all of the steps, didn't have access to those markets themselves. Um, how to get something from their farm to a customer in the US uh, who would pay them that, that true value. Um, and so it was really those two sets of conversations that that made me realize that there was there was a supply and there was a demand and that everybody involved in the supply chain was was looking for a way to improve it um and that because i had these two sets of of experiences uh, i i would be able to bring those two groups of people together hmm. yeah and so you said you studied development and i'm wondering how that has translated over to the way you have been working with burlap and barrel I feel like when I tell people I'm getting a master's degree in development studies, they always ask, "What even is development?" And honestly, it's a it's a good question. It's a I mean, it's a tough question. Um, but what is development? I, I think this is an interesting opportunity to ask you, within the context of what you're doing, can you tell us what it is? Yeah, uh, it is a, a really good question. Uh, I always start my answer with with the context that everything is our fault. Like we screwed everything up. Uh, we, you know, the, the royal, we, the, the, the Western uh, powers that, that colonized and extracted and, uh, and have left most of the world or the global south in, in the current position that they're in. So development is, should be about uh, making up for and going far beyond the, the mistakes or the, the decisions that previous generations have made on our behalf. Um, so so uh, that, that comes into play in terms of economic development. Uh, in terms of putting more money into the hands of people in rural communities in the global south who uh, have been left out of uh, global economic development, have been have, have not had access to the kinds of supply chains that we're talking about now, um, and and I would say that my education and development prepared me to work in development, but also the fact that I had done it at this kind of historically left left-wing institution of the School of Oriental and African Studies in London uh, gave me a really a really critical lens through which to look at the work that I ultimately ended up doing through the Art Khan Foundation. And, and nothing against them, it's a great organization. Uh, but, but development 
as it's structured now as an industry is, is pretty fundamentally flawed. Uh, priorities are driven by donors, not by needs on the ground, not by what, uh, you know, quote unquote beneficiaries might be looking for. Um, it's very bureaucratic. It's very structured. There are reasons for all of that, but the, the, the ultimate outcome is that if development in its most of its forms doesn't prioritize the needs of the people it's intended to serve. It prioritizes other people, other organizations, whether that's donors or governments or uh, NGOs or you know anybody else. Um, and so what I wanted to do with Burlap and Barrel from the beginning was was to look at some of those flaws and, and try to try to fix them in our own small way. And so rather than uh, giving money to organizations who would then put together projects and provide services to people, um, our strategy from the beginning has been to find entrepreneurs, find business owners who are growing an exceptional product, who are really, really good and really knowledgeable about it, but who will also have have a lot of hustle, who want to grow their businesses, who who are game to to try to build new a new style of supply chain with us, um, and just put more money into their hands. Um, so so rather than donating money or or the fair trade system, which involves sort of a, a separate account that gets spent by a a group, a, a committee that decides how to spend the, the premium. Um, we just pay our partner farmers a lot more than they would make anywhere else. Um, and, and that's connected to a very high quality of product and they understand that. And that's in almost every case what they're already growing. Um, but uh, it, it also involves them taking on more responsibility in the export of their product. It varies a lot country to country in terms of what what's feasible uh, kind of bureaucratically, but um, but that involves asking farmers to take on uh, steps that historically would have been done by middlemen or brokers, the sorting, the sifting, the packaging, uh, even just the export process, grinding, all of all of the steps that go into producing spices or, or preparing them for export, um, asking our partner farmers to take on more of that. Often they're eager to, often that's what they want to be doing and they just haven't found a partner who'll trust them to do it. Um, but ultimately it comes back to this, this philosophy of how can we pay our partner farmers as much as possible to do work that they're already doing, or that's just kind of a small extension out from that, um, and looking for for other, continuing to look for other value-added processes they can do at Origin that that we can pay them more money for. And I, you know, I was talking with a professor, and we we were discussing something a bit specific, but I think it's relevant for this. She said, you know, we needed to stop looking for the easy answers. We need to embrace complexity. And you know what you're doing is really going against the traditional path towards social justice and making a real difference. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what it means to embrace complexity and stop looking for the easy answers. Yeah, I think that I think I think she's absolutely right. I mean, there aren't easy answers. So anybody who's looking for them and thinks they find them is wrong. Uh, they're just they just haven't found the answer, or they've only found a, a small portion of the answer. Everything is complicated. Everything needs to be complicated because there's a lot of people in the world and a lot of forces and a lot of dynamics to account for. I mean, we 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 have gotten a lot of advice over the lifetime of the business. We we will be the business will be five years old in October, um, and especially in the early days, got a lot of advice to simplify to focus on one country or focus on one product or limit the number of spices that we were going to carry or um, only sell into one channel, one customer channel. Uh, and and at every point, we, we considered that advice and and mostly decided not, I mean, I won't say we ignored it because we, we listened to it, it was valuable, any advice is, is helpful, but ultimately decided not to listen to it uh, because, because that complexity was really important. It was important to to see if this model, this idea that we had would apply to farmers in different countries. 
was important to see if we could make this work both with spices that people know, like cinnamon and black pepper, but could we make it work with things like seaweed flakes or black lime or uh, Timor peppercorns, right? A, a, a very a, a, a rare Szechuan peppercorn relative that grows in the Himalayas that people in the US mostly have not heard of. Could we, could we make it work for both types of spices? Um, and, and could we broaden our impact? Because ultimately we are, we're a social enterprise, we're a public benefit, an incorporated public benefit corporation. Um, and so having impact is, is you know, top of the list of, of what we're trying to accomplish with the business. And, and uh, to some extent, impact happens at scale. And so would we be able to scale up and out to have the kind of impact we were, we were hoping for? Yeah, and you, and you just mentioned that Burlap and Barrel is a public benefit corporation, which I understand is a fairly new corporate legal status. Can you explain what that is and why you decided to do that? Sure. Yeah, there are several different styles of public benefit corporation, um, and and as you mentioned, it's new and so it's it's evolving, and and everybody's trying to figure out how they fit together and and uh, how they might be different. Um, but the way that we decided to go is a legal. Uh, corporate status called the Public Benefit Corporation. That's our, we are incorporated um, as a public benefit corporation. And, and in that status, our social mission, it gets written into our articles of incorporation. So it's a legally binding social mission. In our case, it's to connect smallholder farmers with high value markets. Um, and and uh, that comes with a, a, a legal obligation to, to maximize that impact. So like any corporation, we have a, a legal obligation to maximize profits for our shareholders, which we don't have any of, but but fine. Um, but uh, we also have this parallel legal obligation to connect smallholder farmers with high value markets. We could be sued if somebody feels like we're not doing that or not doing that uh, to the extent that we should be. Um, we publish an impact report every year to talk about uh, impact that we've had at origin, amounts of money we've, we've paid to our partner farmers, the ways that we've been able to scale up, the impact that that's had on their businesses and livelihoods. Um, and, and we run a very transparent organization. Our, we have open books for our employees. We, uh, so everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows how much we're spending on, on various things. Um, uh, and, and it gives us a platform from which to talk about uh, this kind of new style of capitalism, right? Like we, it's, capitalism is broken. Uh, it, it's been a shitty system from the beginning, um, but can we, can we use it as a tool uh, to to balance or or correct some of those those past mistakes or past decisions that have been made over centuries uh, that have that have created the the economic system that we live in today. So I mean, kind of talking about this new style of capitalism. Most companies, at the end of the day, they care about their profits and returns. And do you believe that we will ever move in a direction where you know in, instead of looking for a fifteen percent return in order to keep shareholders happy, a nine percent return? Uh, when you're thinking more about the environmental and social impact your company is having becomes the standard? Uh, the universe has nothing but time. So we're, we're going to get wherever we want to get. I don't know. Like, um, uh, I, I, I would have loved your goals than, than like convincing somebody to take a little bit less as a return. Uh, and, and I think we, I, there are companies that do that, that do that really well. Uh, there's, there, you know, there are well-established companies, especially in the U.S., like Equal Exchange, like King Arthur Flour, um, Cabot Creamery, companies that have done, you know, things that are very close to what we're trying to do and done it in in a cooperative structure uh, with with really interesting and, and creative ways of dealing with their investors and raising money. Um, 
so you know we're not inventing this we're we're adapting it for our own unique situation and and our needs but uh there there are great precedents especially in food and, and i think i think we're seeing especially among younger consumers but but not exclusively i, I think in, in, in a lot of old, from a lot of older people too um people want to know that their money is being spent wisely being spent well is not just going into the pockets of some rich asshole who uh you know is going to use it poorly or isn't going to isn't doesn't need it um and and if we can do that and do that effectively and and tell honest stories uh, which some companies don't really do but you know if we can if we can speak honestly about how we're spending that money um i i think it's i think it's very attainable um i i'd like to see a you know more nonprofit structures uh take on for-profit projects um, what, what does it look like if there are not investors or not shareholders that you have to pay up, pay, pay back or pay off? Um, and so we have, it, it has been pretty challenging, but we have bootstrapped the company from the beginning. Um, we don't have any outside investors, uh, and, um, and, and that has allowed us to make decisions with a lot more flexibility than, than other companies, especially small startups that, that do need outside funding. And especially if it's venture capital or, or other uh, investors who are focused on those high returns that you're talking about, or even higher in many cases. Um, I, I think those investors often push companies to, to collapse before, you know, when they wouldn't have to, but because they can't perform at the level like you're talking about, they can't perform at the, at the level of returns that the investor wants, they'll, they'll shut the company down. And, and I think that undermines a lot of, of really effective small businesses that would find a niche for themselves if they could grow differently. Yeah. And, and you just talked about, you know, telling a story. I'm wondering how important has it been, like the, the element of storytelling? Um, you know, the spices that you sell are rare and, you know, half of, not half, almost all of them I've never seen <laughs> before. Um, how do you convince people that something like the spices th that they buy is something that they should really care about? Yeah, the, the storytelling is super important, mostly because it's um, it's what I talk about as the process of decommodification, that if you just tell somebody where something came from, you can charge more money for it. I mean, you know, we're doing it in a more complicated, holistic way, but that's really all it is. If people love stories and they love stories around food, especially. And if I serve you a plate of cabbage and don't tell you anything about it, I, I don't know, maybe you're not going to be super excited about the cabbage, but if I serve you a plate of cabbage and tell you this is an heirloom variety grown for flavor, it tastes like this and it looks like this and here's the person who grew it and here's why it's special, you're gonna, you, you are truly going to enjoy the cabbage more. It's not, a, it's not an illusion. Uh, you're, you know, the neuroscience of, of flavor is such that you will enjoy eating that food that you know more about more than you would uh, eating something that was anonymous. And so, you know, we're not making stories up. We're, we're telling you honestly, where, where these spices came from and, and talking about our decision-making process to say, this is the farmer that we're working with. And here are all of the, the dozen reasons. This is why we love them. This is why we love their, their, the, the spices they produce. Um, and this is why you're going to love them too. It's not a, you know, it, it's not, it's not a marketing angle, although it does certainly have marketing benefits. It's just truly a, an explanation of why we've decided to source that particular spice from that particular person in place. Yeah. And, and maybe to talk more specifically about spices now, could you talk about some of the worst elements of the spice supply chain? Yeah. I mean, the, the crazy thing about spice supply chains is, is really how little they've changed uh, in thousands of years. Um, the spice trade is, you know, we joke, it's the oldest profession. It, it goes all the way back. Um, and, you know, even before recorded history, people were 
transporting spices and, and other agricultural products on ships from a place where they grew really well to a place where they didn't to try to sell them. Um, there's archaeological evidence of cloves uh, in the ruins of a, a middle-class merchant's home in what's now modern-day Syria on the Mediterranean coast, uh, going back to 1700 BCE. So 4,000 years ago, cloves were being traded from uh, these little islands in the South Pacific, which at that point was the only place in the world that they grew, the Maluka's, um, island to island to uh, ultimately to a port in the Middle East, either in modern day Iraq or Yemen and transported by by camel caravan through the desert, ultimately getting to to uh, Syria, modern day Syria. Um, I mean, that's a that's a crazy trip to think about even today with all of the modern uh, transportation vehicles and, and technology. Uh, so to imagine that happening 4,000 years ago is mind boggling. Um, and really the spice trade has changed very little that spices are still traded hand to hand to hand, person to person to person. Um, often they'll change hands a dozen times before they leave the country of origin. A farmer will sell to a local buyer or consolidator. Sometimes it's a truck driver or somebody with a, a small warehouse or a storeroom in the back of a shop in their local town. That person is buying from a dozen or a few dozen spice farmers. Uh, and then selling on to somebody else with a bigger truck or a bigger warehouse or a little bit more processing capacity, whatever that might look like for the individual spice. Um, and so uh, what's happening, first of all, is that spices are being consolidated. So if an individual farmer is growing something special or doing something different, whether that's an heirloom variety or, or something in their agricultural process, all of that is getting lost because it's getting mixed with everybody else from everywhere else in the country. Um, farmers have no visibility into the supply chain that they initiate. So they sell to that local buyer. That's the end of the story for them. They don't know where their product winds up or how anybody is using it. So as a business owner, how, how could they be expected to, to grow something that their customer wants if they don't know who their ultimate customer is? Um, and uh, it increases the price. Um, everybody in that supply chain takes, takes a little cut, adds a little, off, adds a little on top. Um, and because most spices are commodities or global commodities, uh, the the global price will shift based on based on factors that are very unpredictable and and hard to protect um hard to protect yourself from so you know brazil and vietnam are both huge producers of black pepper if brazil has a great season the global commodity price is going to go down because supply has gone up uh, and a farmer an individual smallholder farmer in vietnam is going to make less money because there's more brazilian pepper on the market um and that's not something that they could ever really uh plan for or, or protect themselves against. And so what happens, what farmers do and what everybody else in that supply chain does is they they hedge their bets, they sit on inventory. So if if global prices go down because there's global supply has gone up, um, really the only tool that farmers and anybody else has uh, is, to, is to stockpile. Um, and so a farmer will grow a whole bunch, they'll sell what they need to to make whatever money they need in the short term, but they'll they'll sit on anything extra to hope to sell it in the off season or hope that prices go up the following year. Um, and, and so that has created a really backwards incentive structure where farmers are incentivized to reduce the quality of what they grow. You know, they're storing it on the farm, it's in a shed or it's in a spare room in the house, there's chickens and dust and all kinds of other, you know, things that, that exist on farms. Um, and so the quality really does go down, but that's all that, that's really the only thing that an individual farmer can do to protect themselves against that volatility. Um, so there, you know, there isn't a, a big bad wolf in this story. There are huge spice companies, obviously, most of, most of which your, you and your listeners will likely not have heard of. Um, but, 
but they're all, uh, you know, they're all playing the same game. They're just doing it bigger and with more money. Um, but, but everybody is just trying to sort of manage, um, reduce their risks in this, in this screwed up backward system rather than saying, you know, what's a better system? How do we build, how do we build a new supply chain? How do we start this over from scratch in a way that is going to benefit farmers, benefit us as the company importing and selling spices and ultimately benefit our, our customers, the people who are cooking with the spices. I mean, it's crazy to think that, uh, you know, just like most cooks, have never thought about where their spices come from. Most people don't even think about spices as, as agricultural products in the first place. Black pepper looks like grapes on a vine and cinnamon is tree bark. Most people who cook with those ingredients have no idea. Uh, but likewise, farmers have no idea where their spices are going. They don't know who their customers are. They don't know what to grow for those customers. And, um, and they've never, truly never in the history of the spice trade has a farmer been able to, to talk to the person who was cooking with the spice that, that they grew. And we've been able to do that. We have a Facebook group where many of our partner farmers are active, many of our customers are active. They can talk to each other. And, and we can also be the conduit between our customers and our, our partner farmers to say, Toronto is using your coriander seeds. Um, and so to be able to share that information, not only with, with our customers, you know, the restaurant here, we can tell the restaurant or the chef, here's the farm and the farmer who grew your coriander, but, but to be able to, to send that information back in the other direction uh, has been really, really rewarding and something our partner farmers have been thrilled about. And how have you been able to create this network of spice farmers from all over the world? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Uh, we meet farmers in all kinds of ways. Um, initially, it was through my personal contacts. The first countries that we started importing from were Afghanistan, where I had lived for a few years and, and had really good contacts. Uh, Zanzibar, where I had met through a friend working on a, a direct trade coffee project had met a cooperative of farmers looking to export their own spices. Uh, and Guatemala, those were the first three countries. Um, we've met farmers through NGOs. That's how we met our partner farmer in Guatemala. We've met farmers through local government agencies or offices. Uh, in several countries, I've spent time with uh, local ministries of agriculture or foreign affairs or, or other employees of, of government, local government, who, whose job it is to bring foreign investment into rural agricultural communities. Um, and, and more and more, we're meeting farmers on social media. It's, it's pretty crazy, but that, that has been a, a huge way to connect with, with new partner farmers. Farmers are active on Facebook. There are very busy Facebook groups in a lot of countries, uh, really focused on young farmers who are trying to learn how to grow organically or regeneratively, sustainably in one way or another, who have a a commitment, a real cultural commitment to growing heirloom varieties that may be lower yield, but may have more, you know, better flavor or, or a certain kind of cultural importance that, that people want to grow. Um, and that those, those same people are often frustrated with that commodity supply chain of, of spices changing hands a million times. And so if we can find those people, if they're growing something exceptional, if they're, if they're excited to, to try, try out something new with us, um, we, we, can, we can usually work with them. So uh, in some cases, we work with individual farmers. In some cases, we work with cooperatives or other associations of farmers. In a couple of cases, we work with a social enterprise that is then working with farmers themselves, often with a training component to teach farmers how to grow higher value crops like spices or to help them become organic certified. Um, and, and we've kind of cobbled together this amazing network of farmers who, uh, despite obviously not knowing each other, not coming from the same background or culture, not speaking the same language, we have, there's a really incredible consistency of, of just kind of personality and, and values and outlook um, that if we put our, you know, our partner farmer in India who grows turmeric together with our partner farmer in Guatemala who grows cardamom, 
uh, they don't speak any of the same languages, but they would be best friends. They just they just have so much in common in in the way that they're approaching this, and and that's been uh, honestly that's been any success that we've had has has been because because we work with farmers who are growing absolutely incredible spices. Yeah, that's super cool. And and how active are you in these relationships with the farmers? Super active. Uh, I talk to them every day. Um, I don't talk to every one of them every day, but I'm every single day I'm in touch with with a handful of our partner farmers checking in. Uh, how's the season going? How's the harvest looking? What are you up to? Uh, what do you need? Um, you know, how's the weather? Uh, here's a picture of, of a blizzard in New York City. You live in Vietnam. You've never seen snow. Isn't this funny? Uh, like, you know, how, how can we establish a, a real personal and professional relationship? Because you know, that, that commodity supply chain that I've described or where, you know, farmer sells to buyer, sells to buyer, sells to buyer. The thing that I think often gets missed uh, in, in describing that or understanding that is that there are strong personal relationships uh, throughout that supply chain. And so a farmer selling to a truck driver, you know, it's, it's easy for us to, easy for us as a society to kind of crap on the middleman as driving prices up and, and uh, you know, removing value from farmers. But, um, but often the farmer and the truck driver who they sell to uh, they live in a community together. Their kids go to school together. They've been working together for, for years or decades or sometimes generations in many cases. Um, we obviously cannot replicate that, uh, but we can acknowledge the importance of those personal relationships. We can pay a lot of respect to that and, and do our best to, to set up a similar system um, that also likewise relies on, on personal relationships, on the relationship that I have as an individual, as a person with with a partner farmer in, in Vietnam or Indonesia or, or wherever it might be. We're, we're all working towards the same thing. Um, I, in almost every case, have visited and spent time on the farm with them in person. And so we get a sense of, of each other. Do I want to work with them? Do they want to work with me? Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, one of our, our top priorities in all these conversations, this sounds so basic to, to say, but it's important, is, is farmer agency. I mean, do they want to do this? Do they want to be working with us on this? What do they want to be growing? How do they want to be running their business? Can we, can, does that work nicely with the way that we want to be growing and running our business or, or not? Uh, is there a middle ground that we can find or not? Sometimes there isn't. And we might have a great preliminary conversation or series of conversations with a partner farmer that ultimately doesn't go anywhere uh, because they, you know, they want to do something different than what we want to do. And, and we're never in the position of, of pressuring somebody or pushing somebody into doing something that they don't, that they're not excited about doing. Um, so, I mean, that sounds so obvious, but, but you'd be amazed at how many companies build their businesses by, by bulldozing other people, by pressuring them, by, uh, you know, offering more money and then changing their minds or, you know, playing all kinds of stupid games. Um, and ultimately, like, we just want to work with people who want to work with us. And, and that has paid off in, in terms of the quality of the spices that they send to us. Uh, we are their favorite customer in in every case. Sometimes we're their only customer. Some, in many cases now, especially as we've grown, we're buying everything they grow, um, and and that they also want to uh, bring other people into these into these relationships, into these conversations. So, uh, you know, in the case of the white pepper farm that we work with in Indonesia, it's a fairly small farm, a father and son. Um, they we buy everything that they grow, and and we're we're expecting to need more than they're able to produce. Uh, in the next couple of years. And so they're going out to talk to their neighbors and, and see if they could pull together a, an association or a cooperative of some kind um, that will benefit more people in their community uh, and get us the, the quantity of spices that we need. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and you know, when I, when I see you talk about 
spices, I can see how much it fires you up. Like I'm assuming it hasn't been easy creating this business, but how has your passion for what you do keep you going? And like, how has it really contributed to the amount of success that you've had? Yeah, it has definitely been really hard. And anybody who started a business, anybody who's who's worked in food, even in somebody else's business, and especially anybody who started a food business, will tell you it is it is a really hard business to be in. There are a lot of a lot of things to think about, a lot of risks. Um, uh, you know, we hold a lot of inventory, and that comes with a lot of risks. We work with smallholder farmers who have not exported before. Some of them are, are good at it and figure it out quickly. Some of them need a little longer and make more mistakes on the way. Uh, we have gotten shipments arrive full of, of little insects. Uh, we have had shipments arrive with uh, little stones uh, that we've had to sort out. Um, so, you know, the, the way that I have approached it and the way that my co-founder Ori has approached it uh, has been that, the prop, that those challenges are not, are not obstacles. They are part of the process. Um, when something like that happens, we need to understand why it happened and what we could have done to prevent it and what measures we need to put in place to prevent it from happening the next time. Um, it really is about a, a lot of <laughs> long series of learning experiences um, and building a business that, that is resilient, that, that kind of expects those things to happen again and is prepared for them. Um, and, and then also, uh, you know, relying on our, on the relationships with our partner farmers to say like, you know, there were bugs in that shipment. What happened? What happened on the farm? Where could the bugs have gotten in? Did they start on the farm with the spices or did they, uh, you know, did they crawl over in transit? Um, and, and our partner farmers have, have almost all been really enthusiastic to help us resolve those problems because they see the upsides uh, for themselves and their businesses. They like working with us. We, we get along well. Um, and so, uh, even when it's hard, those relationships have have kept it moving, and that outlook of of um, these are inevitable. We're never going to be able to stop those kinds of things from happening. We're dealing with agricultural products. We're buying them from small farms. There will always be an element of of unpredictability. So, what can we do to prevent that? Um, and then the other upside is we get to sell spices to amazing restaurants. We get to hang out with chefs and and eat amazing meals. We get to go on on the most interesting, exciting trips you could possibly imagine. I mean, we, we joke also that uh, we started the company to have an excuse to travel to cool places and, and hang out with interesting people. And, and that's very much what we do. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, it, it'll get started again. But prior to the pandemic, we were doing four to six big trips a year, a couple of weeks at a time, traveling through rural areas of Vietnam or India or Indonesia or Guatemala, um, places that I would never have a reason to go or an excuse to go, but are absolutely fascinating. And um, and I get to develop real relationships with the people there and, and ultimately, hopefully, have, have some kind of positive economic impact on, on those communities. So even when the day-to-day, the, -day, the grind is, is tough, which it often is, uh, I get to look forward to my next trip, and, and that's, that, that's really exciting. Well, hopefully soon enough for the next trip. Um, yeah. la so last question, something I ask everyone what would you say to someone who wants to make a difference but doesn't know where to start? I think ideas are overrated. I think there are a lot of ideas uh, and people get stuck on that phase, uh, right? Like I wanna have an impact, but I don't know what my idea is. Usually you have an idea already and you just haven't kind of pulled it out of, of uh, the cloud of everything that you're thinking about. Um, and. And the harder part is really the implementation. So, uh, you know, 
if, if there's an idea or a field or a focus or an area of interest, um, I, I would say pursue it, learn more about it, talk to people who know a lot about it, try to get involved in one way or another as a volunteer, as an intern, as a, uh, you know, you write about it, talk about it, um, get a job with an organization that's, that's working on that issue and learn about the implementation because that, that is always the hardest, that is always the harder or the hardest part is harder than, than coming up with the idea is actually making it happen. Ideas are a dime a dozen, everybody's got them, especially kind of entrepreneurial people who are thinking about impact and thinking about uh, the, the role that they wanna play in, in making that impact. Um, but how do you wanna have the impact and what's your sort of mechanism for, for doing that? I think that's worth spending a lot more time on than the idea itself. Um, and, and also uh, there's, there's a lot to be said for just kind of closing your eyes and jumping that you will always learn more about doing something once, once you start doing it uh, than, than when you're trying to prepare or trying to learn about doing it beforehand. Uh, there's, there's no replacement for, for that hands-on experience that you'll get. And uh, you know, everybody does things badly. It's not a question of doing it right, right out of the gate. Most people do things badly most of the time. Um, so, so how do you, how do you hold yourself to a standard? How do you work towards something that that you think the world needs and, and doesn't have already? Um, how do you how do you do that with other people who are going to support you and and agree with your mission and, and help you get there? Um, yeah, it's 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 hard, but uh, but but worth worth trying. One hundred percent. Thank you so much for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. I highly encourage you to go and get some burlap and barrel spices, which you can get on their website at burlapandbarrel.com. And just in general, be more mindful about everything you eat and use in the kitchen. It's not easy, but it's so important. And I know we can all do better, including myself. Have a great day and let's be bold.